X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Christine Alexander from Portland, Oregon. You can find me on X-Ray in the morning each Tuesday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Listen to X-Ray in Portland at 91.1 or 107.1 FM on your radio dial or online at xray.fm. It's Monday, March 15th. Today, back in the day on March 15th, 1846, Oregon was informed of its statehood. Oregon statehood was declared over a month prior to that in Washington, D.C., but it took a while for word to travel across the country. The message had a long journey. It started in a wire from Washington, D.C. to St. Louis, then took a stagecoach from St. Louis to San Francisco, arrived in the port of Portland after a five-day steamboat journey from San Francisco. Thirteen hours after the steamboat arrived in Portland, the capital of Salem was alerted that Oregon was now part of the United States of America. Of course, the state exists on land inhabited by Umpqua, Chinook, Sayusla, and Siletz Native American tribes, to name a few. Today, back in the day on March 15, 2014, X-Ray FM began broadcasting a full schedule of programming. Thanks to a crowdfunding campaign, progressive talk content and music began filling the airwaves at 91.1 FM. X-Ray FM was born in the wake of Portland's progressive talk station KPOJ, being switched to sports talk in 2011. I remember it well. KPOJ left a void. Without it, there was no progressive talk radio in Portland. Today, X-Ray FM airs talk content programs like News with Friends, Run Up the Numbers, Unrefined Sophisticates, In Search of Portland, City Club, and so much more. Music programming includes all kinds of music with some of Portland's most well-known and inspiring DJs. X-Ray FM's slogan, Radio is Yours, expresses the station's drive to reflect the community voice on air. X-Ray. We'll start with your Quick 6 News headlines, and we have an interview with Kylie Ladd, Executive Director of Kairos PDX. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Portlanders rallied in memory of Breonna Taylor on the one-year anniversary of her death. Breonna Taylor was murdered by police serving a no-knock warrant in Louisville, Kentucky, one year ago. About 100 demonstrators gathered under the Burnside Bridge to mark the anniversary on Saturday night. Speakers addressed the crowd, then they marched onto the bridge and released paper lanterns in Taylor's honor. A separate group of demonstrators met earlier in the day at Revolution Hall in southeast Portland. On Friday, 13 protesters were arrested and over 100 were detained by police using kettling. That's the controversial tactic of corralling large crowds. The protesters were gathered for a direct action march but had no specific agenda. Late Saturday night, a different group of about 200 gathered outside the downtown Justice Center. The Justice Center was the site of daily protests over the summer and has once again become a focal point after security fences were taken down Thursday. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Sunday, the Oregon Health Authority announced 234 new cases of COVID-19. There were zero deaths statewide. Oregon's total case number is now 159,617. Our total death toll is still at 2,322. Sunday marked the one-year anniversary of the first reported death of COVID-19 in Oregon. 
20,045 new doses of the vaccine were added to the Oregon registry over the weekend, a total of 1,322,013 doses have now been administered to Oregonians. Meanwhile, Governor Brown is maintaining Oregon's vaccine rollout schedule despite a quicker national promise. President Biden has announced that there will be enough vaccines for all adults by May 1st. In Oregon, however, Governor Kate Brown is sticking to a general population rollout date of July 1st. Brown says that she won't promise an earlier date until federal shipments of the vaccine actually increase. Oregon Health Authority Director Patrick Allen clarified the position, saying, quote, Until we get more clarity, we need to keep our current timelines in place. We can't disappoint people who eagerly want a vaccine. A new wave of Oregonians will be eligible for the vaccine on March 29th, including residents 45 and older with underlying conditions, people experiencing homelessness, and frontline food and agricultural workers. Brown said that if the general population date does end up getting moved up, vulnerable populations will still get priority. Healthcare providers in Oregon are giving about 24,000 shots a day, but are prepared to double that number pending delivery. Senator Ron Wyden wants to make some unemployment benefits permanent. At the beginning of the pandemic, unemployment benefits were increased beyond the normal 26 weeks, and millions of workers became eligible for Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, PUA. These programs have been extended twice so far, once in December and again last week after President Biden signed the new relief bill. As it currently stands, most of these pandemic benefits are set to expire after Labor Day, which lands on September 6th this year. Oregon Senator Ron Wyden has proposed making the PUA program permanent for self-employed people and gig workers. Wyden also is arguing for legislation that would increase jobless benefits in times of economic stress. In his words, quote, support is growing for the idea of triggers where you tie the benefits to conditions on the ground. Wyden hasn't specified how to fund these programs. PUA is currently funded from the federal treasury as contractors are not obligated to pay into regular unemployment funds. Due to our obsolete computer system, Oregon was one of the slowest states in the country to pay out jobless benefits. Oregon plans to spend $100 million to put in a new system by 2025. New documents show how police mistakenly identified Commissioner Joanne Hardesty as a hit-and-run suspect. On Friday, Portland officials released documents including police reports and a 911 call which wrongly implicated Commissioner Hardesty in a hit-and-run accident. The call from March 3rd was made by a woman who was rear-ended on Southeast 148th and East Burnside Street. The caller told operators, quote, I know who hit me, a city commissioner. It was Joanne Hardesty. She was behind me for three stoplights. I know it was her. Police used this call to look for Hardesty's license plate number and search for the car near her home in the Gateway neighborhood. When police called the alleged victim back the next day, she was no longer certain that it was Hardesty who had hit her. On March 4th, Hardesty said she hadn't been driving the day before and that her car was different than the one that police were searching for. Hardesty has donated that car and was currently driving a different one. Using TriMet security footage from the area of the accident, Portland police determined that the driver of the car was Shirley Collins of Vancouver, Washington. It is yet to be determined how information of Hardesty's wrongful accusation was leaked to conservative activists and the media. 
that will be subject to an independent investigation, the scope of which will be determined by Hardesty and Mayor Wheeler. Oregonians still had to spring forward despite legislation. Nearly two years ago, Oregon and Washington state legislators voted to stay on daylight saving time year-round. Soon after, Idaho and British Columbia joined them. Still, Sunday morning came an hour earlier for residents of the Pacific Northwest. So if we voted to scrap the spring time change, why do we still have to do it? Oregon, Washington, and Idaho are still waiting on federal authorization from Congress. Many citizens, including Chris Wolf of Redmond, Washington, are tired of waiting. This winter, Wolf filed a citizen's initiative, which, if passed, would direct the Washington Secretary of State to mail copies of the initiative to members of Congress and the president. Wolf and his supporters don't think they'll get the signatures in time due to financial constraints. They need 324,000 valid signatures by July for the initiative to qualify for the November 2021 general election. Instead, they want to reach out to members of Congress directly. But Congress may already be acting. Earlier this week, Senator Ron Wyden co-sponsored the Sunshine Protection Act. This act would make daylight savings time permanent in all states that observe it. And finally, some good news. With Oregon's help, a lot of relief money is getting directed toward the food industry. Last week, President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan, allocating $28.6 billion in relief grants to food industry businesses. The structure of the aid was largely inspired by a bill drafted by Portland Representative Earl Blumenauer. His Restaurants Act was tacked on to the Failed Heroes Act, but was revived and added to the more recent stimulus package in a more limited form. The aid is focused on equitable disbursement. $5 billion is allocated for food businesses whose annual gross receipts were below $500,000. For the first three weeks of grant distribution, businesses owned by veterans, women, and marginalized groups will be prioritized. At the beginning of the pandemic, a group of 70 Oregon food industry professionals, led by the Independent Restaurant Coalition Executive Director Erica Palmer, drafted a letter to Governor Brown. The letter asked for a moratorium on commercial evictions, a ban on on-site dining, employment insurance for furloughed restaurant workers, and many other things. The letter set the standard for restaurant industry activism across the country. The Independent Restaurant Coalition teamed up with Representative Blumenauer and developed a list of policy recommendations, which would be turned into his Restaurants Act. Now that the funds are set to be distributed, the IRC is working to make sure that small business owners understand how to access them. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Kairos PDX is a learning academy for K-5 students an early learning network for child care providers, and a leader in the community advocating for equity and care for historically underserved youth. Next up is Kali Thorne-Ladd, Executive Director of Kairos, sharing her perspectives on the state of learning and what's ahead. Here are Kali and X-Ray's Belinda Carroll. Our next interview, I'm very excited. We are now joined by Kaylee Ladd, Executive Director of Curos PDX, a culturally responsive education program for kids. Kaylee is joining us today to talk about the impact of the pandemic uh, and, and the effect it's had on child care workers. Thank you for joining, Kaylee. How are you doing? I'm good. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yes. Wonderful. It's been a while since you've been here. How have you been? How are you? 
I am good. A lot is happening. The world has shifted a lot since the last time I was here, um, but exciting things happening in our community for young young people. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about it uh, today as far as uh, 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 preschool for all and all sorts of stuff that's happening. Um, so tell us, what is uh, the reality of being a child care worker uh, during the pandemic? So I want to start by saying I, I do not, I am not a child care worker myself, so I want to <laughs> be transparent about that. Um, but I do serve on the Early Learning Council, which is the body that oversees child care and early childhood for the state of Oregon. And um, I, in that role, we're able to listen to what is happening throughout the state for our early learning workers. And one of the things that I think is most profound is just how much this sector has been impacted by the pandemic. These are small business owners, largely women and minority owned businesses in the early learning space mm -hmm. uh, with pay that is far below living wage. And so um, it has decimated a lot of these small businesses. You have some large early childhood providers, center-based care, but the majority of childcare exists but through small businesses, home-based childcare providers who have not had what they needed to, to survive during this time. They're frontline workers that have been essential to helping people stay at work during the pandemic. People need childcare. Um, but I think we've seen really the disparities between uh, in wages, between who um, does well and who doesn't. And the fact that this sector is so heavily female and so heavily uh, women of color, the fact that the, they are not making living wages, I think has really been highlighted during the pandemic. And yet the work that they do, the essential nature of the work that they do has also been highlighted during the pandemic. And so I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how do we support our childcare workforce in a better way? And how do we ensure that they are on a salary scale that allows for living wage? No, and absolutely. And the thing is, is that childcare workers in general aren't paid well and they have one of the hardest jobs on the planet, you know, and especially right now, because uh, I, you know, I've been thinking about this as far as how, kids are affected and especially like early early before you know early childhood um how do you yeah. think the pandemic has affected early childhood development you know children are resilient and i think it, it's all about having caring adults connected with them and reassuring them and and helping them feel safe there is a lot of turmoil that I think could have a negative impact on children during this time, young children. But as long as they're in a caring and loving environment and they have a connection with a loving, caring adult, the things that are seemingly traumatic and uh, terrifying can actually build resiliency in the brain and help children thrive and push through. So we are wired in such a way, children are wired in such a way to be able to get over difficult things, but it does take people, adults being intentional and in supporting them and helping them feel safe during these times. And so I'm hopeful because I think people, um, you know, families love their children and they're trying to support them in every way possible. Children can adjust to change better than we give them credit for. Uh, and so I don't know, I'm hopeful. Uh, <laughs> and I think we have to recognize that when children do experience stress, this manifests itself in behaviors and big emotions, and we have to be patient and not penalize them for it. No, I agree with that. Do you think that uh, childcare workers are finding that they have to compensate for some of the lack of socialization that children are experiencing currently? 
I think they likely will have to. Yes, um, the social emotional pieces are critical in the early uh, childhood development years. Um, I think there's a lot that remains to be seen. I think children definitely, after being home for a while, having to go to a, a different place and not being in the routine of that, that attachment um, is, is challenging. And uh, there's an adjustment period, uh, but that's part of being human. I don't think it's something that's insurmountable and that will have long-term negative impacts on children. Yeah, I think that they're going to come out of it and be resilient uh, for sure. Uh, but most students are being homeschooled now. Uh, do you think parents are collaborating with teachers on how to make the best of the situation? I think uh, I think it's all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it really depends on the age of the child. So in early childhood, it's very different. And early childhood child care centers were open when K-12 wasn't. So you have more young children, zero to five, that have had access to school than you have within like the five to 18 spectrum. I think um, in the K-12 space, there's certainly a desire to partner. Families are trying to figure out a way to partner uh, with their schools. I think everybody has adjusted and had to be hands-on in a way that they uh, could not you know, imagine a lot of teachers are parents themselves. So they're both having to teach and manage children in their home. <laughs> and uh, I think I've been able to be part of a campaign with other educators and help uh, folks called um, Learning Apart Standing Together. I encourage people to go onto the website, Learning Apart Standing Together. And the whole campaign is really to honor our educators and honor our children during this time, recognizing that this is difficult, that we are apart, but we are together in this, that mm -hmm. everybody is going through the shared experience. And the more that we can see it, like ourselves as a collective yeah. moving through, we can overcome. And so um, this website, really just shares the stories so you can listen and know you're not alone the stories of educators and the stories of children and families and here's how we are dealing with it and it looks different in different communities but I think um, this is the work that is ahead of us and I, I I feel that our community has been trying very hard our collective community to ensure that our children are okay yeah and I think that you're I think you're absolutely right and I think it's true for adults too the more that we see it as a collective situation that we are working to supersede and get over, uh, the more we will come out of this uh, better people and more whole, you know. Um, yeah. How long do you feel like kids can do this for as far as the separation, as far as the homeschooling? I mean, some homeschool kids are sitting at home going, I did it my whole life, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it really depends on the child. I think that's the interesting thing. My hope for education is that it takes this moment in time to pause and look at what wasn't working and reevaluate how we do schooling and how do we do teaching and learning. Uh, our educational system is a one-size-fits-all approach for a group of children that are not one size fits all. And so for some, the homeschool environment has been a place where they thrive more, um, that it hasn't been detrimental. For others, it's been oppressive. And so um, this idea that schooling is one way, like we have to break that open. And yeah. I hope if nothing else, our educational leaders are looking at this and re realizing that we have to differentiate more and understand 
we have to be more child-centered in our approach and understand that children are in different places. There was a really good article that was out that talked about, um, I, I think it was in the Oregonian, uh, and they talked about a black child who felt safe at home because of the bullying and the experience of racism that he experiences in the classroom. People don't account for these, like, in quote unquote invisible experiences that children carry and that that stress impacts their ability to learn and their, their ability to thrive within the educational space and so um to assume that it's all good for this group or all bad it just it doesn't work that way yeah. and i hope that we come out of this with a much more intention with much more intentionality and in being child-centered and supporting every child and what they need absolutely and i feel like school hasn't necessarily changed for a long time and so people are grappling with this new idea of school being uh, homeschool and, and with virtual school and that type of thing. And my hope is that more kids get their needs met through the changes. You know, if we can yeah. get anything out of this, at least we can yeah. get kids that can learn the way that they learn versus being forced into yeah. a box where they're only learning in this way. And if you don't learn in this way, then what you're doing is is uh, for naught, you know. Um, so what uh what changes for the good are you currently seeing in the state of education in oregon changes for the good well certainly you know preschool for all is very exciting uh last last week we announced uh the county announced the new director of of the preschool effort and i think this is huge for our community and really giving um our youth access to what all the research says is critical uh, for them to thrive in the long term, the access to quality early childhood. So that's very exciting. I think, you know, the community coming together, the learning apart, standing together, what's really great about that is it's healthcare, it's large healthcare providers, um, Care Oregon and uh, Providence, and, you know, coming to HealthShare, coming together with superintendents uh, in Gresham and Gladstone and different parts of this metro region Mm -hmm. and with community-based providers like Kairos uh, saying we have to work together to support children. Health and education can't be siloed uh, apart from one another because for children to thrive, they need that social, emotional, mental well-being in addition to strong academic learning opportunities. And the coming together of those two things has been needed for a very long time. And I think finally people are recognizing that um, academic success is is dependent on child well-being. And um, and that has been needed. And so those are a couple things. There's a lot happening. <laughs> but, you know, I think that's that's really something to note is that, you know, a holistic approach to uh, learning is so important for kids because, you know, uh, I think that for a long time, and I, I, when I grew up uh, in the eighties, um, so, <laughs> so, but when I grew up in the eighties, like yes. you know, there, there was, uh, you know, we, we largely ignored, for example, the need for nutrition and the need for kids to eat uh, several meals a day and not come to school hungry or not come to school tired because they didn't get enough sleep and that type of thing. So just those basic things weren't being met. Uh, then and so and so acknowledging those things and acknowledging that the the learning isn't necessarily completely on the kid uh, yes they are an active participant in their own learning however um, the things that are going on around them and the situations that they're in are very important to their the outcomes of their education um, right and so you know and so I'm very excited about the new preschool uh, for all director and her name is Leslie Barnes 
yes. And so do you feel like the Preschool for All initiative is materializing the way folks hoped it would? I think so far so good. I mean, I think what's unique about this is that it was an effort that started with community and community-based organizations. And I think, I hope to see a growth in partnership between the educational system and community-based organizations who have been around a long time, have deep roots in community and deep roots with families. And I think any effort that starts with community is going to be an effort that is stronger and more salient for the the children. And so I think the roots were exactly what they needed to be. And I think that the county leadership, uh, you know, Commissioner Vega Peterson, um, stepping out in the way that she did and and certainly the entire uh, board of county commissioners coming alongside her and partnering and listening and amplifying the voice of community to hear what it is they needed and and listening to community-based organizations that really you know are connected with families is exactly what needed to happen to build the infrastructure and foundation for this and so leslie i've known for a while uh, she has a long track record in early childhood and had ran her own child care business uh, i think she is exactly you know what we need to build the foundation um for a preschool for all so i'm yes i think it's good and i'm super excited uh and i think that the community has to be patient and and i think sometimes there's it feels like it has to happen, you know, tomorrow. There's a sense of urgency, and but this takes time. Building the infrastructure to provide preschool for thousands of children <laughs> can't happen overnight. <laughs> and so I hope people, you know, will take time to listen, will have grace, and will partner instead of criticize when things don't materialize, maybe in the way that they foresee it should. Because, uh, I, yeah, I think it's it takes time to build a system. <laughs> no, no, I think so, too. What, what would you be your ideal for the future? if you could paint the best ideal for the preschool for all initiative? Um, I think you need a quality mixed delivery system. It's part of what preschool promise did through the state. Uh, and I think recognizing that childcare uh, needs for different families differ. So it has to, I think what this effort was focused on is it can't just be setting up a bunch of preschool classrooms. It has to recognize the constellation of early childhood services and that for some families, they don't want to send their kids away all day, uh, you know, when they're three years old. And so how are you supporting families? Um, programs like uh, Juntos Aprendemos out of Latino Network, which is supporting parents to support their children, parents that want to be the primary caregiver and teacher of their child in the early years, how are you giving them tools in the same way that you're giving Head Start tools in the same way that you're giving that family-based provider tools? Like all of those pieces have to be in place and then the menu of options for the family to decide what is the right step for them. And hopefully there's enough information where they can be informed about, you know, similar to what the child care resource and referral has tried to do. Um, that they can be informed of what are the characteristics of these different programs, that there are slots available for them, that there's space available. We have to build infrastructure. We don't have the physical space to actually provide childcare for everyone who needs it. And so that in a housing development project, they're thinking one step ahead about how we're going to include childcare in this, in this housing development for the developers at large to be thinking about when we are building our city and building infrastructure, how are we including and embedding childcare in that built-in infrastructure. So there's a lot of moving pieces that have to happen on simultaneous tracks for this to work. But I think um, 
the ideal is that we're building the infrastructure while we're building the constellation of diverse quality services that we recognize quality means culturally responsive and competent and children see, being um, feeling like they are seen and that they belong no matter what race, no matter what language, no matter what economic circumstance they find themselves. Absolutely. Um, that was a lot. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no. I think it's fantastic. I think that... Um, you know, an equitable school situation would be amazing. I would, uh, you know, I'm excited about the future of uh, Portland because of this, because I know that as a Head Start start kid, uh, you know, I had the experience of, of going to Head Start and that really set the ba- set the, the pace for me as far as learning and loving learning, you know. Um, so how do you feel like the community can support child care workers uh, in education during this time? Well, there are some policy, um, the legislature is looking at some bills right now that would help with just um, paying them well. And I think supporting policies that will help our childcare workers get better pay is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think recognizing them as frontline workers and, um, you know, giving them the moral and support and encouragement they need, providing I think there hasn't been loans to childcare, like in the small business uh, money that has come for COVID, childcare hasn't gotten as much. And so um, they're looking at, the federal government is looking at more um, subsidies to support childcare. I think any advocacy from a policy standpoint that supports the infrastructure of our childcare system and ensuring that these, um, again, female business owners get what they need for their business to be strong uh, is important. And we need to be supporting access to those dollars uh, as a whole. Absolutely. Um, and you're the ED of Kuros PDX, which includes a charter school focused on elevating the voices of historically underserved kids. Um, what are some of your priorities as we approach the spring? Well, Kairos, uh, the Learning Academy, like every school, is looking at reopening. I mean, the governor uh, issued a mandate to reopen on Friday of last week. And so uh, we are are focused on how we reopen in a way. I think we try really hard. 75% of our children and families are children and families of color. And we want to center their voices and their needs in reopening. And oftentimes our education system does not do so. And so ensuring that we're safe, recognizing that everybody doesn't feel comfortable going back. And um, there's a lot of, particularly in communities of color, high risk populations, there's many multi-generational homes. And so we are focused on listening to families and doing what we can to ensure that children who want to return can return safely and that whether they return on site or they're learning distant that they have a quality learning experience and we've been doing that all along we value relationships they're at the center of our approach um children can't learn as easily when they don't trust and feel safe with a with an adult and mm-hmm. so uh, we've worked really hard to build strong relationships with both the child and the family and uh and we'll continue to do so in this spring season and then we do a lot of policy work and advocacy work as well so we'll continue i've, I've testified a number of times uh before the legislature around equity issues as it pertains to children in our state and we'll continue to do that as well Awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you were here. We've run out of time, which I could talk about this for another 20 minutes. But um, thank you so much for being here, Kali Ladd. Uh, and uh, we will join you in a moment. You're listening to X-Ray FM. Thanks to Kali for joining us on X-Ray FM. Thank you for listening to The Local. 
your hometown in about 30 minutes. I'm Christine Alexander, happy to bring you more news and interviews with movers and shakers on X-Ray in the Morning, Tuesdays from 7 to 9 a.m. That's where you'll find me. Radio is yours on X-Ray FM. X-Ray. Hi! It's Nardwar to Human Serviette in Portland, Oregon. Please support X-Ray.fm. Do-do-do-do-do. X-Ray.fm. <laughs>